Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you has a friend who will, friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey. I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. Matt, thank you. Church, good morning. It is always good to be with you second servicers. Did I just make that up? Yes. Yep, I did just make that up. It's good to be with you guys uh, this morning. Uh, before we open the word, let's pray. Father, we are grateful to be gathered as your people here at Castleton Community Church this morning. Grateful for your word. We are grateful for your spirit that illuminates it in our hearts. Father, this morning, over the next few minutes, might we be transformed through the uh, preaching of your word. Might we love you and trust you and follow you more closely. God, do what only you can do and uh, many more things that we can, uh, yeah, either ask or imagine. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hudson Taylor was a great man of faith. He had a singular focus and desire, to preach the gospel where it had not yet been preached. In his case, China. In 1853, he left England on a boat bound for China. Of course, in the mid-1800s, this was not a fast or even safe journey. Off the coast of Papua New Guinea, months into that journey, he found himself stuck. His boat was pushed up against coral reefs, and there was no wind for weeks to move it any further. Even uh, the captain of the ship had all but given up, saying, we can't do anything else. Just let down the longboats. But Hudson Taylor, he spoke up. There's one thing we have not done yet. Let the Christians pray about it. In his own words, he recounts, I went to my cabin and told the Lord I was just on my way to China, that he had sent me, and that I couldn't get there if I was shipwrecked and killed. 
And that I was going to ask him for a breeze, but I felt so confident about it that I couldn't ask him. He went up to the top deck and told one of his shipmates, uh, if I were you, I would let down the main sail. You can all probably guess what happened next. The sail was raised, the wind came, the gospel preached in China. You could say that Hudson Taylor was blown away by the answer to his prayer. His prayer and faith is still producing much fruit to this day. So how could Hudson Taylor be so confident, so bold to ask, or in his case, even assume, that God might change the weather? I hope this morning you will find the answer to that question and that you too can be confident, knowing that with boldness we can approach our Father in prayer and that he will answer for his glory and our good. We're going to see that in three sections this morning. First section, verses 1 through 4, will be the model prayer. Second section, 5 through 8, will be the bold prayer. And third point in 9 through 13, we are going to see the trusting prayer. Now, before we uh, dive in, you should know a couple things. One is that I'm going to spend a bit more time in the first point than I will in the second two points. That's uh, by design. Uh, there's so much glorious gospel truth in the first four verses that I don't want to skip over it because it's familiar uh, or because we've maybe heard it preached or prayed a thousand times. I really want to dive into that. So hang with me as we get through the first point. The second and third points won't be as long and we'll get you guys out of here before you immediately come back for the congregational meeting tonight. Okay. Uh, and then the, the second point uh, before I really dive in is I just want to clear up uh, any confusion that might exist as we enter into our passage this morning as it relates to the Lord's Prayer in the Gospel of Luke and the Lord's Prayer as recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, the probably a bit more familiar one to us. Okay, so right away that might be a bit confusing. They're both called the Lord's Prayer, but they have slightly different words. Kevin DeYoung in his book on the Lord's Prayer helps us out so we break through the confusion a bit. There are two versions of the Lord's Prayer. One in Luke and a more familiar one in Matthew. I don't, think the one in, I don't think one prayer is dependent on the other. A simpler explanation is that Jesus, like any itinerant preacher, taught on the same things over and over, and with different words and in slightly different ways. So I hope that kind of breaks up the confusion for you that you might have as you think of Matthew's uh, Lord's Prayer, but we're actually going through the one recorded in Luke. All right, let's dive in. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. So it's clear from Luke's description here that Jesus' disciples are impressed with his prayer life. If that was not the case, they wouldn't be asking him to teach him how to pray. And that's exactly what Jesus does to open up this passage. And what they ask, teach us to pray. Jesus. Now, if you've been with us through the book of Luke over the last many months, or you've even spent some time in the Gospels yourself, you'll know that Jesus is different than other religious leaders or teachers of the day. Jesus had already told his disciples, recorded in Matthew 6, to not pray as the religious leaders, the Pharisees of the day, do. 
So if they're not supposed to pray as the religious leaders of the day pray, then, then how should they? Well, Jesus gives them that answer in a, in a very direct way in, in verse 2. And he said to them, when you pray, say. Now, it's important to note what Jesus is doing here and what he's not doing. Jesus is not saying that his disciples can only pray this way, right? Or that you must pray that these exact words or that it's some type of magical formula. Right, we have in the gospel books plenty of other ways that Jesus instructed us, his followers, to pray. In fact, just a couple weeks ago in Luke 10, 2, it's recorded, uh, pray earnestly for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So while Jesus is giving his disciples and us church this morning a model by which we can and should pray, a model by which we can and should pray, but we can and should be praying other things. So while this may not be the only thing we should or can pray, it is an important teaching that Jesus gives us that should certainly carry weight as we, his followers, seek to follow him. Pastor David Mathis, uh, writing for Desiring God, captures this importance really well. He said, put yourself there with the disciples when they asked Jesus how to pray. How to pray? What would he say? Whatever comes next these will be some of the most important words in the history of the world. I agree. And I hope that kind of breaks down the commonness, the familiarity. These are some of the most important words ever spoken in the history of the world. I can imagine the disciples leaning in a bit closer. Maybe a, a hush coming over them. What will Jesus say? And what's recorded first, I think, is there for a reason. What does Jesus say? The first thing he teaches us to pray is Father. Jesus teaches us to address God as Father. Now that is a development that is nearly impossible to overstate how important it is. But maybe that's the most routine part of the prayer for us. Church, we can't take for granted that we have a Father in heaven that we can talk with and pray to. In fact, that Father is the God of the universe, the creator and sustainer of all things, good in every way. Father. And what first request does Jesus ask us to bring before the Father, teach us to bring before the Father? Hallowed be your name. Now, that's a, that's a word that's hardly, if ever, used today. I have never used that word once in conversation in my 32 years of life. Maybe you haven't either. So what does it mean? When we pray to our Father in heaven and ask that his name be hallowed, what are we asking for? We are asking that God's name would be revered. We're asking that his name alone might be sanctified. We're asking that it would be set apart from any other name in this world. Might your name be glorified, God? Hallowed be your name. In this petition before our Father, we are asking God to do something that only he can do. 
We are asking God to intervene directly in this world for his name's sake. That the world would recognize God's sovereignty over it. That is a worthy thing to pray for. So I think it's first. Hallowed be your name. Now Jesus continues that model prayer by telling his disciples to pray to the Father, first hallowed be your name, and then your kingdom come. Again, we are at risk of repeating this phrase without fully understanding what it means. What are we praying for? What are we asking for when we pray, your kingdom come? Well, it's certainly twofold. First, we are asking God, pleading with him, that his rule and reign would be established here on earth, right here, right now, in the lives of each and every single person. We are praying that evil in all of our lives would be overthrown, replaced with the perfect peace and justice that only God's reign can provide. That's right here, right now. But secondly, there's a part of this model prayer that has an eschatological focus. Big word of the day. We're looking to the future. We are praying not just for God's rule and reign to be established in the hearts of all people right here, right now, but we're praying that God's rule and reign would come fully and finally with the second coming of his son, Jesus. So the kingdom we pray for is both inaugurated at Jesus' first coming And we long for the day when he returns. So what do we do as we wait for that kingdom? Do we sit idly by? Absolutely not. We now, as followers of Jesus, are ambassadors of the kingdom for which we pray. God uses us to proclaim his rule and reign, that many would come to know him. So what does that look like? How do we join this kingdom come? First, I think we must orient our lives around kingdom purpose and priorities. Kingdom purpose and priorities. How do you spend your money? Is it for trivial, vain things of this world? Or do we spend our money in service to the kingdom of which we are a part? Do your spending habits show to a watching world that we care more about God's kingdom than the newest toy or the biggest house? What about this? How do you you spend your time? For your own purpose and pleasure? Or do you spend your time as ambassador of the king? Now, what's, what's the job description of an ambassador? Might be a good question to ask. An ambassador is an official representative of their government that has sent him or her. Is that not exactly what we are as followers of Jesus? We have been commissioned as representatives to go in the world and to proclaim this kingdom come. How about this? How many non-Christians do you interact with on a a weekly basis? For some, like, like me, the answer is actually very few. For others, many of you, praise the Lord. But we might have to get creative in where we can join with God in his kingdom purpose. Step out of our comfort zones. 
Uh, one member of our church, I think, did this really, really well. He was wrestling th- with this question. How can I be a part of God's kingdom come? So where did he do it? Did he do it on some uh, mission field uh, far away? Did he do it here in the church? Nope. He did it at his homeowners association. All the politics and regulations and all the fighting. Who absolutely just loves dealing with their HOA? I assume for most of us it's a love-hate relationship. But he saw a need. So he joined his HOA board. And after a bit of service, they made him HOA president, which I'm sure is sanctifying in and of itself. But he now has a front row seat to kingdom purpose and conversation in his neighborhood, with his neighbors. He describes his service on the HOA board like this. It is, it is a significant output of my walk with Jesus and therefore a source of regular dependence and seeking Jesus to live his life there. Church, that's what we're praying for when we pray his kingdom come. So maybe the conversation in your car on the way home with your spouse or with your parents or with your kids or maybe it's just between you and the Lord is how might you, God, lead me to make the biggest impact for your kingdom? Now, asking that question is a bit of a dangerous exercise, isn't it? Because in faith, there will come a time to respond to what God is revealing to you. For me, I never gave this question any thought in my walk with Jesus until I was 22 years old. Never considered it. I'd been following Jesus for a while. Never considered it. 22 years old, I asked the question, something along these lines, of how can I make the biggest impact for your kingdom? And the answer came back. My answer was not an HOA board. My answer did actually bring me to the mission field and the far corners of East Africa and then a life of vocational ministry. Your answer probably uh, will be different. But to never ask the question is no way to participate in his kingdom come. Jesus continues his model prayer in verse three. Give us each day our daily bread. Now, I don't know about you guys, but daily bread is not something I struggle with. In fact, I suspect for most of us, we don't struggle to get daily food to sustain life. So for those of us who do not struggle to get daily food or daily provision to sustain life, why do we need to pray this? And I would argue that we need to pray this even more regularly. Why is that? Because at the heart of this petition to our Father is a humble recognition that without God's gracious daily provision to us, we will go without. And in a culture and time where excess is the norm, we need that reminder that without God, we will go without. After Jesus is done uh, teaching us to rely on our Father for basic provisions for physical life, he moves in verse 4 to what is essential to spiritual life. Verse 4, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Again, I fear the majesty of what Jesus is teaching us might be lost on us because of the familiar refrain that we have here. 
So let's pause together just for a second and land on this gospel truth, friends. The Father forgives our sins. That's startling, amazing truth. When we turn our lives over and we come under the rule and reign of King Jesus, our sins are forgiven. We were dead and now we are alive. Jesus is saying, teaching us here, that we can directly confess our sin to our Father, the God of the universe, and he will forgive them. Let's not ever tire of that truth, church. If you're here this morning, you've never put your faith or trust and given your life over to King Jesus, there is nothing more then we want you to leave here with the assurance that when you pray to a good father, forgive us our sins, that he is going to do just that. And he's going to lead you into abundant life now, and he's going to lead you into eternal life into the future. Man, we can never get enough of that, church. For those of us here that claim Jesus is Lord, who have come under his rule and reign, Jesus has more words for us. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Now with a, a quick glance or quick reading, someone might walk away with the impression that somehow us forgiving sins is connected to our forgiveness of sin. That we, uh, that God will not work without doing that. Now, now of course not. Our sin problem is taken care of only by the death and resurrection of our King Jesus. But Jesus' teaching uh, here is not just teaching his disciples a distinctive way to pray. Of course he's doing that. He's also teaching his disciples a distinctive way to live. So in that way it makes sense. If we rely solely on God to forgive our sins based on the finished work of Christ on the cross then the outflow for us, his followers, would naturally be to forgive others as they sin against us. Now, I recognize that's a, it's a hard thing to do. We are not alone in that, that difficult endeavor. So we have the Father's help to forgive, just as we were first forgiven. Finally, Jesus wraps up this model prayer for his disciples. And lead us not into temptation. Now, you readers of the Bible or those who have spent any time recently in the book of James might have a, a yellow flag. Maybe you've got a red flag coming up. Temptation, you say? God does not tempt. James 1.13 says as much. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. So there's a natural question here. If God cannot tempt, why are we praying that he would lead us not into temptation? Don't we already know the answer is he won't do that? But here again, in this model prayer, we are humbling ourselves before our Father with an admission that we are likely to succumb to any temptation that comes our way. We are asking in this prayer for God's protection against sin's power and hold over us. We are acknowledging to God that he is the only way we will not fall into sin's misery. And we are completely dependent on him for protection against it. 
Oh, Father, lead us not into temptation. Now, if you've been paying close attention as I've I've been working through the model prayer, you will recognize that I missed a big part of it. Now, instead of having you guys raise your hands and answer which part you think I missed, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you. This model prayer that we have in front of us is not supposed to be an individual prayer. We've made it as much. But Jesus' model prayer is given to us so that we might corporately pray it together. Look at the language that's contained within it. Give us. Forgive us. We ourselves. Lead us. Jesus was not making a mistake by talking in the plural here. We are instructed to pray this prayer corporately because we're instructed to do these things corporately. That's exactly why it's so important to make it a priority to belong to a local church. We cannot pray like this, as Jesus taught us, if we don't have other believers in which to do these things with. So with the corporate nature of this model prayer in mind, and as a desire as Jesus' followers to obey his teaching, I want us this morning at Castleton Community Church to do as believers have done for 2,000 years. And before the final two points of the sermon, I'm going to invite us to stand. And we're going to pray this prayer together as Jesus taught. So if you're able, please stand with your brothers and sisters. And we we will pray this prayer back to our Father together. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And all God's people said, amen, amen. You can be seated. All right, so let's move uh, to our second point this morning, bold prayer. So now what Jesus is going to do is instead of teaching us what to pray, this model prayer, he is going to teach us how to pray. We see that in verses 5 through 8. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me, the door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Jesus opens uh, the parable in verse 5 with a question. Now, that's important to note. It's easy for the question to get lost in the story Jesus is telling. But this question reflects uh, a problem that they had in the first century that we don't have in the 21st century. Food was not readily available then as it is today. In, In the first century, your Uber Eats driver was not showing up on the back of a donkey. Okay? Uh, Walmart and Kroger were 2,000 years into the future, okay? So the host of this story has a problem on that hand, on his hands. He has a late-night visitor, and there's no food for them. So in the first century, really the only choice you would have is to be a little bit bold and go ask your neighbor at midnight, who was probably asleep, and his family was probably asleep. One commentator summed up uh, the thrust of this story in, a, in, this, in this way. It's really good. Which of you has the nerve to wake up 
the neighbor, and his family at midnight to ask for bread. And what does the neighbor's bold request at midnight? He gives his neighbor whatever he needs. Now, Jesus gives us this story, this parable, then nothing. Jesus, as he often does when he teaches in parables, leaves his disciples to wrestle with the meaning of it. Just like his disciples hearing this for the first time, we are also left to wrestle with this parable this morning, church. So what are some implications? What are some applications for what Jesus is saying here? Could the implication for us, church, be one of persistence in prayer? The host, it seems, would not take no for an answer after at least a cursory objection from the friend he was asking for. And while I do think persistence in prayer is good and right, pray without ceasing seems pretty persistent to me, that is not clear, uh, that's not the clear thrust for this parable from Jesus. Should we take Jesus, Jesus literally here? And the implication of this parable should be that if we run out of bread, we go to our friend's house at midnight and ask? No. That's not a way to read a, a story like this. Uh, it, it can't be taken literally here. Your neighbors will thank me. So if not persistence, and if not literally, we're not supposed to go to our neighbor's house at midnight, what is the meaning? What application can we take from this model and story that Jesus gave us? Jesus is making the point through this story that with boldness and confidence, we can approach God in prayer. With boldness and confidence, we can approach God in prayer. How do we know that? Verse 8. The host's impudence was the main point. I tell you, though he will not get up and get him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Again, we come to a word that I've never once used in my entire life. Furthermore, it's the only time this word shows up in the whole of the New Testament. So the best stab at the meaning of impudence here in this passage by people much smarter than me is boldness and shamelessness. That's what the neighbor was doing. That's what the host was doing to his neighbor. He was bold and shameless at midnight going, asking for bread. So simply put, Jesus is telling his disciples that the attitude we should have when we, are, when we approach our Father in prayer is boldness and shamelessness. Now, of course, God's response stands in stark contrast to the friend in this story, who when awoken at midnight with his whole family asleep, moaned and complained, and then eventually he gave it to him. So this begs a question for us this morning. Is this attitude, is this the attitude that we approach God with? A bold and shameless attitude? Or did somewhere along the line, we got the idea that our Father in Heaven didn't want to hear our bold prayers? Didn't want to hear our shameless prayers? That can't be any further from the truth. God gives willingly to those who ask Him. Boldly and shamelessly. Why? Because we're putting God in his rightful place as the only one who can answer those prayers. And if you don't believe me, Jesus gives us no doubt in our last point this morning, trusting prayer. Verse 9. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one 
Who knocks, it will be opened. I hope Jesus' words here are no surprise to you. What Jesus is saying is the outflow of bold and shameless prayers. Those who are going to be bold and shameless with their prayer are going to be trusting in God, that, trusting that God is going to answer them. Maybe some of you in this room are worried that you're going to bother or annoy God with what you pray. Man, I can't pray that for the 17th more time today. God is tired of it. But Jesus' words fly right in the face of that, don't they? Ask, seek, knock. Nothing about only when it's convenient for the Father. You know, I can only ask the Father for bold prayers 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Monday through Friday. I can only ask or knock on the right metaphorical door at the right time. It sounds silly when we say it like that, but I wonder if our attitudes are more like that than we think. Now, verse 10 is a clear posture of what happens when we ask, seek, and knock. We must not think that God is unwilling to give because he is always ready to give his people good gifts. Why? Why is he already to give us good gifts? Because we trust our Father. Now, at this point, I could see uh, two possible questions that might come up for you. They did for me as I was studying this passage, and I want to address them quickly. The first thing that I was thinking that you might be is, why does God invite us to bold and shameless prayer if he already has the good gifts and knows that he is going to give them to us? It's a natural question when we think about prayer. And the short answer is this. We don't pray to change God's heart. We pray to change our own. That we might align our heart with his purpose for our lives and his kingdom. Which leads to the second question that I was thinking about as I studied this passage. Is Jesus really saying that we can ask for anything and that we're going to get it? That's kind of what it seems here at first glance, isn't it? Those who ask, receive. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, the door is open. All right, Josh, so where's that lottery ticket I prayed for two months ago when the jackpot was $2 billion? I didn't get it. The dude in California did. Where's that new job I want? Where's that good health I've been asking for? Where are those kids or my spouse that I desperately want? I've been asking the father, Josh, where is it? And the answer to that question is that when we are bold and trusting in our prayer, Jesus is not always teaching us that the answer is going to be yes. We know that because we've all brought things before the Father, and the answer has been no. Rather, Jesus here is teaching that we'll always have an answer to our prayer. Remember that no is just as definite of an answer as yes. Jesus is making the point that our prayer is always heard, and it's always answered for God's glory and our good. But how can we trust that when, we, when our prayer is heard and it's answered, that it's really for our good, that it's really for our best, that when God answers prayer, he really is going to give us good gifts? Because if some of us are honest here this morning, it doesn't feel like it. It doesn't feel like God's giving us good gifts when he answers our prayers. Jesus doesn't leave us hanging and gives us 
the answer to that question in our last three verses. Verse 11. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of the fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to good gifts, give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus lands on this idea that a father gives good gifts to his son. Sound familiar at all? This is what Jesus has been trying to tell us. The idea here, of course, is that a human father, like myself, even though I am evil, will give my son a good gift. In fact, it's, it's unthinkable that I would give an evil gift to my son. I'm sure many in this room can relate. There are days when parenting is hard, tiring, frustrating, chaotic. I have three boys under the age of five, and our house meets that criteria most of the time. And yet, even in my sinfulness, my evil, my rebellion against God, I don't give my sons, when they ask for lunch or dinner, something that could hurt or even kill them. Because we as parents know how to give good gifts. So church, how much more? How much more can we count on our good, perfect, loving, majestic Father in heaven to give good gifts if even I, a sinful man, can give them? How much more? And those of us who have chosen this narrow path of following after our Father through his Son Jesus know that we have not just received good gifts from our Father but we have received the best gift God has to offer. When we ask him, his spirit indwells us. He gives us uh, nothing of more value than that. He has already given us his best. The Holy Spirit, friends, is our highest good. Luke's readers, like us, would have been reading post-Pentecost. And would have immediately recognized this and agreed with Luke. They would have already experienced the power, guidance, comfort, and teaching that the Spirit provides when he indwells a believer. That would be a, be a whole sermon. So much more truth could be pulled out of this. But I see the earliest believers reading the Gospel of Luke and nodding their heads vigorously in agreement. Of course we can be bold in prayer. Of course we can trust that God is going to answer our prayer. We already asked, and God has given us his best gift, the Holy Spirit. I wonder if that was the faith and trust that Hudson Taylor had and was praying with on his way to China. He received God's best gift, the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. So of course, with boldness and confidence, he knew he could ask for anything else. Brothers and sisters, my hope and prayer this morning is that we would leave with a sense of trust and boldness before our good Father. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you have given us many good gifts. In this room, there's a thousand testimonies to your goodness and your faithfulness.
but we especially praise you and honor you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. That you did not leave us to do this life alone, but indwelt the Holy Spirit in us. That we now can pray with boldness and confidence before you, our good Father. We thank you, Father, that you desire a relationship with us and sent your son, Jesus, to make that possible. And I pray that we would, with boldness and shamelessness and with persistence and with faithfulness, cry out to you big, bold prayers, knowing that you are a big, good God. We thank you for our time this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name.